you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. Sozo Church. Much will be said this morning. Can I get an amen from anybody who's been here before? Much will be said this morning, uh, but what we're about to read, we know, is what God would speak to all people. It's John chapter 11, verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus, everybody say Lazarus, Lazarus. had already been had already been in the tomb four days. Pause, let me just catch us up in case you're visiting here with us or weren't around for the last couple weeks. Lazarus is a friend of Jesus. He gets sick. Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, send word to Jesus, who's several days away, that Lazarus is sick. They're worried he's going to die. Jesus says, don't worry, everything's going to be okay, and then waits around far away until after Lazarus dies. He then tells his disciples, hey, we got to go and visit Lazarus because he's falling asleep. His disciples, being slow, kind of like us, say, well, if he's asleep, he'll get better and he'll wake up. And he goes, you guys are slow and, and, and you don't understand. He's dead. But I go there to wake him up. I go there to raise him. So he goes and Jesus travels and we pick up the story then in 17 where Jesus finds out that Lazarus has already been in the tomb for one, two, three, four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary, those are the sisters of Lazarus, to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Let's pray together this morning, church. Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you have spoken to us as your people and you have spoken to all people, that your your message, your gospel, your word goes out to everyone everywhere and that you, 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 you extend in your grace and in your goodness an invitation to walk in intimate fellowship with you, in friendship with you with you. Jesus, we ask this day that you would come and you would speak to us. God, nothing I can say can accomplish anything of eternal value in this moment. Nothing I can say, no argument I can present, no eloquent speech I can give, no fancy talk I could make could could transform the human soul. And yet we believe that you have commanded us to preach the gospel because in it you do the impossible. You transform hearts. You change minds. You literally, like we sang today, transfer us from death to life. And we ask that that would take place here today. For those who've never experienced that before, that you would grant repentance and faith. 
God, for those of us who walk with you, that you would bring to life those dead places within us, those places that we have, have hidden away and, and pulled back and removed from, from, from intimacy with you. We would open up those doors. We would open up those rooms in our hearts and in our lives to you afresh and anew. God, that you would be glorified and exalted. In Jesus' name, everybody said, go ahead and greet somebody around you and go ahead and grab a seat. Okay, now you're just wasting my preaching time. Come on. I said greet one another, not get one another's full life story. Sheesh. I'm adding this back to my preaching time, just so you know. Taking it back. Awesome. Uh, this morning, if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, uh, I want to talk to you under the title, how versus who? How versus who? Seeing Jesus as the resurrection and the life. Seeing Jesus as the resurrection and the life. So, so I want to I just sort of dive into this here quickly if we can. We've got a lot to cover this morning in these few verses. Um, and, and I want to make sure we have time to get pumpkins afterwards. So uh, I want to I just start off by, by, you know, we talked about we're going to explore sort of this idea of faith. What I want to try to answer in this message this morning is try to see what is faith? It's a good question to ask, I think. And then specifically, what is faith in Jesus? What is faith just in general? What is faith? And then specifically, what is faith in Jesus? Well, f asking really what is faith is sort of an odd question to humans because we all have faith. Everybody's got faith. You are exercising faith right now. You are exercising faith in the roof on top of you that it won't fall onto you. You're exercising faith in the chair that it has the capacity to hold your weight. Some of you are exercising more faith than others. <laughs> somebody just said amen. I hope that was for themselves, not for somebody else. Um, <laughs> we exercise faith in our banks that they have the money that they say they have, and it's our money. We exercise faith in money that it can buy what it says we can buy. We exercise faith in our bodies that it's going to keep uh, having our heart pump and allow us to breathe and our brains are going to keep working. We exercise faith all the time. So really asking what is faith to humans is sort of a weird question. But it's a question that needs an answer. What do we mean by faith? Do we simply mean this idea of trusting in things? Well, thankfully the scriptures give us an answer. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 gives us a very clear answer. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That word assurance can also be translated as the substance of things hoped for. You see, faith is a substance. It is a substance. By assurance, by substance, what we mean is that it is the substructure upon which we, uh, we, we live our lives. We life our lives also, because I can spell. Welcome to church. 
It is is the substructure. It's the thing beneath everything. That's why why you have faith in that chair. It's the substructure. It's the thing that gives you the assurance that you can go ahead and sit down. You can walk into a building and the roof's not going to fall. It's the thing that's beneath everything that holds up anything. But faith is also... Faith is also a conviction. It is an evidence. It is the tangible proof that the eternal dwells within us. It's how you know that you're more than just this physical being that you are right now. It's faith. It's this invisible thing within us that lets us know that there's more to us than just what we possess physically. But there's another kind of faith. There's the religious type of faith, right? Somebody says, I'm a person of faith. It often means that they, 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 they align to a religion. I think this is what Mary, Martha rather is trying to interact with Jesus. Martha agrees with Jesus. When he says, hey, your brother's going to be resurrected. He's going to rise again. She's like, oh, this is Jesus being a rabbi. He's asking me. He's challenging me. He's testing my theology, so I'm going to agree with him. But what you need to understand is that in agreeing with Jesus that, that Lazarus would someday be resurrected, that he would rise again, all she was really doing was, was confessing that she aligned herself with the religious thought of the day. See, the prevailing view of the time was held by the Pharisees who said that there would be a resurrection on the last day. Everybody say the last day. At the end of all, at the end of everything, God would sort of make everything new again. They, they got this predominantly from, from Isaiah's chap, Isaiah chapter 60 through 66. The last six chapters of, of the prophet Isaiah lay out God sort of creating a new heavens and a new earth, a, a new priesthood, a new people, a, a new wedding, a new, a new way of living. And, and they said, hey, that's all going to happen and he's going to resurrect us. And so they aligned themselves with the scriptures. And so she's simply here saying, hey, I agree with that. I know that someday, when everybody else is resurrected, my brother will be resurrected. But if you notice in, in, the, in the exchange, this doesn't seem, this, this, this theological understanding doesn't seem to really change anything in her actual experience. Can I get an amen from anybody, come on, who's walked through some religion that didn't really help a lot? I like the way that Nell Newbegin says it in, in their commentary on the book of John. It says, the prospect of a universal resurrection on the last day is a very cold comfort. It's a very cold comfort. Sure, it's, it's nice to know. Yeah, that's a great truth. Hey, thanks a lot, Jesus. I'm really glad that someday stuff's going to get better, but it still sucks right now. What she fails to understand, however, is that Jesus is not here to test her theology. Jesus is here to expand her testimony. See, Jesus isn't here just as a rabbi going like, you know, like, I just want to make sure that you understand theologically what's going on here, Martha. I want to make sure that, you know, you, you remain a faithful Christian. See, this is the way a lot of us think. When we go through difficult and hard situations, we're like, well, God's just trying to teach me something. Come on, that's a cold comfort. I mean, it's nice to know, sure, great, God's trying to teach me something, but, but, but it doesn't make it suck any less. But the reality is that Jesus is not merely trying to impart information to her. He's not trying to test her theology. 
He's trying to expand her, her testimony. He's trying to give her a broader experience. Hint, hint, going to let the cat out of the bag early. He's trying to give her a broader experience of who he is. So, so then the issue with humanity is not, do we have faith? Practical faith, like the ability to sit on a chair, you have that, right? Because you're sitting in a chair. Not even theological, religious faith. I mean, she had that, right? She had a religious faith and, and she had it all right. It's not a matter of, of are you able to, to trust the things in your, in your world. It's not a matter of do you have right theological understanding even. The question is not do you have faith, but rather what is the object of your faith? Or can I put it another way? Who or what do you put your faith in? She had faith. She had right theology. And yet something here is off, and so Jesus presses into it. So we see Jesus declare, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and life. This, this can be missed by us in its significance for her because I don't think we grasp the, 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 the gravity of the situation that she's in. So I want to take a moment, if we can, and just sort of look at this family here for a second. Uh, this, this, in all likelihood, is a very poor family. We, we see no, no parents in the story and no extended family, which would have been very odd for a, for a first century Jewish family. These were, these were tribes. These were large extended families. Something has happened to either, catch this please, cause their parents to, to pass away and their families to all die, or something in their life or lifestyle has caused their family to reject them. They're alone. We don't see parents. We don't see anybody in the story. Even, even at the death of Lazarus, no other families there. We get a list of who's there. Hey, Mary and Martha, his sisters are there. And sort of like a crowd of people who want to eat at the funeral are there. They're there to console them. These just sort of general leaders of the day, they're there. Now, now that's, that's about as much as we can get strictly from this account. But if we expand our vision out to the rest of the Gospels, we see a few things. And I'm going to be honest, some of these elements are clear. Others we have to sort of uh, 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 infer from other accounts. So I want to look at these, these three. I want to look at Mary. I want to look at Lazarus. I want to look at Martha. Now, Mary, we, we know later on in just the next chapter is going to anoint the feet of Jesus with oil and she, she's going to be honored there. And, and an account of this happens in all four Gospels. Now, now here's where Bible people are going to love Bible students. You're going to like this. Okay, like we don't know for sure if that's all one account or if there may be two different accounts. Some, some scholars even say there might be three separate uh, times where this happens. We don't really know. We're just going to kind of look at this best we can and get an idea of who is Mary. We know from at least Luke's account of this, which seems to be the same account, that, that he calls her a woman of the city who was a sinner. That's church talk. Can I level with you what he's really saying? She was a prostitute. She was involved in some sort of sex work in the city. That's how everybody knew of her. Again, this is evidence that this was probably a very poor, impoverished family where she had to find a way to support herself. We don't know whether her parents passed away, where some tragedy happened in her life and that put her in this place or whether she engaged in this and her family excommunicated her. 
But she's given herself to a lifestyle that would have been very, very condemned in the, in the religious culture of her day. There's a possibility, some scholars believe, this Mary may also be the very Mary that we call Mary Magdalene, who we know had seven demons cast out of her. So this, this woman is, is at least, come on, not in a good spot in her life. Or are you tracking with me? Before Jesus steps in, before Jesus enters the picture, she's in a rough spot. Now Jesus steps in and everything seems to shift in their family. Lazarus, again, if you weren't here last week, Lazarus, uh, it's interesting that this account of Jesus raising somebody from the dead is only found in one of the four Gospels. The Gospels are all accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Or as I like to say, when I was a little kid, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Darth Vader. I liked Star Wars. Um, before they ruined it. And um, <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all, they're all accounts, they're all stories, they're all, they're all, they're all a, a, a different vantage points, viewpoints of the life and ministry of Jesus. It's odd that only John talks about Lazarus, this big account of Jesus raising somebody from the dead. Seems kind of odd. Well, I pointed out my, my personal conviction that you don't have to agree with, it's absolutely fine, is that Jesus didn't make up the parables that he taught. Jesus was a storyteller. He told stories to teach truths. I don't believe he made those stories up. I believe they were actual, factual, real things that really happened because I don't think God has to make stuff up. No problem in my theology if he does make up the stories, but I just don't believe they are. So in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable of a rich man who doesn't get a name and a beggar named Lazarus. Funny thing about this account, they both die. One of them, using cultural terminology, ends up in the good place, that's Lazarus. One of them ends up in the bad place, that's the rich guy. The rich man is, is in torment in the bad place. And he peers across some sort of chasm and he sees Abraham, the father of the faith, and, and at his side is Lazarus. And he begs Abraham to send Lazarus down to him with just a little bit of water to make this horrible torment just a little bit better. Abraham lets him know that there's no way to get from here to there. And so the rich man says, well, at least then will you let Lazarus be resurrected? Because then he can go warn my brothers. So they don't end up in the bad place. I'd rather they end up in the good place. Because true theological fact, regardless of what you believe about hell, the good place is better than the bad place. So we see then, this truth is told to the rich man that, hey, even if Lazarus is resurrected and he goes and warns your brothers, if they don't listen to the truth of God's word, they're not going to listen to his testimony either. Because the power is not found solely in your testimony. The power is found in the word of God and is given evidence by your testimony. So it's interesting to me that we see Lazarus in a parable die and be possibly resurrected then uh-oh in John we see a guy named Lazarus <laughs> die get resurrected could it be that Jesus didn't make up his parables if that's the case then Lazarus was perhaps maybe he might have been a beggar again giving credence to the my statement that this family was in trouble it was it was poor it, it struggled financially it was uh, not of the same means as their neighbors 
So Lazarus is, is, is the only male in the family, so he would have sort of been the one in charge of, of sort of uh, protecting and, and giving validity to this little triune family. The culture of their day was truly patriarchal, where, where, where women were, were not afforded the same rights and privileges as men. There's some evidence that Lazarus was, was not well in his body just in general. So the only option he had was to beg. See now a picture sort of, of framing and informing around this family. You've got a sister who sells herself into sex work. You've got a brother who's a beggar. And then we've got Martha. Martha seems to be a, a laborer. She seems to be a worker. She works in the city, perhaps in the house of a guy named Simon the leper. This is all in other gospel accounts. You can do some study and some research into this yourself. Mary seems to be the one who's trying to hold this family together. She's trying to be the one who sort of makes this family work to keep them in some sort of a, a picture of, of respectable and honorable. And, and, and I can just see Martha, she's, she's striving for this, but her sister's kind of going sideways. Her brother's got a beg in the city and she's just trying to scrape together whatever sort of finances she can have by being some sort of servant in somebody else's house. And, and then Jesus steps into their life. Everything seems to change. Mary is delivered from what is holding her in bondage. And Lazarus seems to be elevated to some sort of standing of prominence in the city. We don't know how, but, but enough that, that leaders in the city, the Jews in the city, when he dies, want to come and, and be a part of mourning his life. Jesus seems to step in, and like he always does, come on, he makes everything better. And so when her brother gets sick, when her brother falls ill, when her brother doesn't seem to be able to, to get better and they send word to Jesus, their, their reasonable expectation, come on, is that Jesus will show up and fix the problem. Right? Like that's, that's reasonable to expect. It's what he seems to have done before, so, so he'll do it again. Yeah, come on, if he, can do, if he can get Mary out of the, the lifestyle she was in, come on, he could surely, come on, fix Lazarus's temperature. And yet he withholds himself. And her brother dies. He doesn't react the way she expected him to react. And in that moment, in that moment of pain, Martha needs to know that her brother, when she needs her brother to be alive, not, not some promise that, hey, there, there's, a, there's a future day coming where all your problems will be solved. She's like, yeah, but I have problems now. <laughs> I, have no, I have no man in my life, and, 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 and I need to know that he's going to be alive. And you weren't here for that. So not only does she need to know that her brother's going to be alive, but she needs to know that she was not abandoned. That's why she says, if you'd been here, he, he wouldn't have died. But look, I know you can do whatever you want. I know that whatever you ask God, he'll do that for you. I said this last week, I don't think she had any, any hope that her brother was going to be resurrected. I, thought, I think maybe she thought Jesus might take her and her sister in with, with him. Maybe he would be the one that would be kind of the, 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 the husband for her, the head for her, the covering for her. Maybe he would find another family, maybe one of his disciples. Jesus, I know whatever you ask God, he'll do. So, so, so I need to know, I need to know if my brother's not going to be alive. Have I been abandoned? Have you given up on me? Did, did my past mistakes finally catch up? Did you finally say enough is enough? Have you given up on me? 
Because my situation is, is hopeless. I, I got nothing left. She thinks she needs Jesus. Please catch this. She, 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 she thinks she needs Jesus to, to, to be there so he can do something for her. Right? Whatever you ask God to do, he'll do for you. And I need you to do something for me. I need you to, I need you to promise me that, that the darkness is not going to creep back into my sister's life and pull her back in to what she used to be. And I need, I need to know that I don't have to worry about her every night going out and doing what she used to do. I need to know that I'm not going to have to participate in that as well just to survive. I need to know that I need you to do something for me. But what she fails to understand and what Jesus is trying to tell her by telling her that he is the resurrection and he is the life is that she, 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 she doesn't just need Jesus to do something for her. He wants to push this revelation deeper into her heart. She thinks she's got a picture of who Jesus is. He's the guy that does stuff for me. He's the guy that fixes my problems. He's the guy that if he just shows up, he knows what I need and, and he has what I need. And he'll make it all better. But what Jesus is trying to get her to see, what I believe he's trying to get you and I to see, is that Jesus is not the means by which you obtain what you desire. Jesus is to be the object of your desire. Jesus did not come to her and say, Lazarus is going to rise again. Yeah, I know he's going to rise again on the last day. Well, hey, I have resurrection and I have life. He didn't say, I have resurrection and I have life. He said, I am the resurrection. I am the life. I don't know what you need. I don't have what you need. I am, Jesus says, what you need. Can I get like three Christians that are a little bit excited about that? Come on, as, as a good follower of a, a, a pharisaical teaching, Martha agreed that there was a day coming, right? When, when new life and new creation and new existence would take place where, where God would renew everything and, and sin and suffering, trials and tribulation, pain and problems would all be gone. She, she believed in that. She aligned her life with the hope of Isaiah 60 through 66. She, she aligned herself with that and she, she lived in that hope and she lived in that faith and she had good theology, and yet Jesus comes and says, hey, 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 you think you're waiting for a thing. You're actually waiting for me. That hope that you have, that dream that you have, that desire that you have is not going to be fulfilled in, in, in experience. What he says is that the resurrection is not a doctrine, it's a person. The new life is not a doctrine, it's a person. This is why, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, I love you. <laughs> this is why you can have perfect theology on your way to hell. We're just putting the fun back in fundamental. Come on, let's come. Let's come on. <laughs> this is why, this is this, look, look, the, I, I pray and I hope and I work and I strive. My, my life, part of my life's work is to try to help this body have the best theology we can have. We're big theology people around here. Right now, we got a class going on basic doctrine. 
We get accused sometimes because I have tattoos and big holes in my ears of being a hipster church. Name me two hipster churches that teach basic doctrine. <laughs> Didn't think you could. No, we're big theology people. This is not me diminishing the importance of theology. This is me saying as important as theology is, the person of Jesus is more important than your perfect theology. Jesus comes to her and says, Mary, listen, it's not about your past mistakes and it's not about you trying to have your, your, your theology all right. It's about you knowing who I am. Jesus would say to her, because, because come on, the resurrection is not, a, is not a doctrine, it's a person. It's not a theological position to be evaluated, it is a person to be embraced. It is not a theology with bullet points and facets to be memorized. It is a person with a body and a face to leave you mesmerized. Jesus is himself that which you long for. He is himself that which you need. Brother, you're getting into subjectivity. <laughs> Very subjective. All theology is subjective. I don't think so. I think, I think theology is very solid and concrete. Really? Then how come, how come if you get 10 theologians in a room, they will take about 3.7 nanoseconds to find stuff they disagree on? They all read the same Bible, the same solid, tangible, non-subjective Bible, and come up with very different viewpoints. What I'm talking about is encountering the living, active, breathing, real, tangible Jesus. Jesus steps into her story and he says, listen, I am the resurrection you need. This means he is our restart. He is our new birth. He is our new genesis. He is the beginning to everything for us. That's why you need to meet Jesus. I don't care what else you hear this, this morning. You need to meet Jesus. My hope is not that you find a good church. My hope is that you find Jesus. Or more truthfully, that you would be found by Jesus because he's not lost. You are. <laughs> See, if, 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 he's, if he's the resurrection, then he's our resurrection. He's our resurrection. But here's, here's the crazy part. He doesn't just say he's your new start. He doesn't just say, hey, I'm the, I'm the resurrection. He also, he, he goes on. He, he doesn't just say, I, I'm the resurrection. The, 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 the news gets better than that. He's, he's, he, he goes beyond that to ensure that, 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 that her and that us, that we Understand that he's not just the start, he's the sustainer. He, Jesus is not just our resurrection, he's our life. What he's saying to, to Martha is this, Martha, listen, I'm the resurrection, I'm the thing that's going to bring dead Lazarus back to life, but I'm also the thing that's going to sustain you through this miserable season in your life. I'm the thing that will continue your existence. This, this word life that he uses for himself is one of John's favorite words in the Gospel of John. It's the Greek word zoe. Everybody say zoe. 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 It's a cool word. 
Zoe. It, it, it doesn't just mean existing. It doesn't just mean breathing. It doesn't just mean being alive. It means actual, full, complete life. Real life, not just making it through. He, he's not saying, hey, 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 Martha, I'm the resurrection and I'm the one that will, will, will help you just grind through this misery that we call life. No, he says, I, I, I'm, I'm the thing that's going to make this, this, this flat, black and white existence that you think is the best you can hope for, I'm going to make it 3D and in color. I'm going to give flavor to everything in your life. I'm going to give fulfillment to everything in your life. He is, come on, our life. He's the thing that starts us on the new, and he's the thing that's going to sustain you in the new. How good is Jesus that he doesn't just say, hey, I'll get you going, and then you better you know, learn how to fly. I'll be your kick out of the nest, and then you better start flapping your wings. That's what religious told me. Pray the prayer, blow the snot all over the altar, look real sorry because you really messed up, and you are, a, you are a worm, and so you better squirm and cry and, 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 and be really, not just pretty cry. You need to ugly cry at camp. And then Jesus will like, he'll let you back in, but you're just on the outskirts, and you mess up again, and he is real quick with the band hammer. And he'll drop it on you. So you better figure out how to live your life. Jesus says, that's not the way it works. I'm the one that gets you in, and I'm the one that keeps you in. I'm the one, I'm the one that restores you, and I'm the one that's going to reinvigorate your capacity to walk out the life that I've called you to live. Not just surviving, not just making it through, but a life full and complete in him. Ultimately, here's what I think Jesus is saying. When Jesus says, hey, Martha, I'm the resurrection life. Can I, can I, can I give you the, the, the Mark expanded version of what I think he's really saying? Here's what I think he's saying. Martha, you are waiting for an event that you think will somehow fulfill your desires, give your life meaning, and grant you a confidence that will allow you to live out your days. But no event can do this, Martha. No singular experience, no matter how great or how grand, can fulfill the needs of your soul. For all the moments of your life are just that. They are moments. And by their very nature, they are fleeting and they are frail. But Martha, your soul was not designed to live off of the temporal, transient, terrestrial titillations of this life. Your soul was designed for me and for me alone. It was designed by me and it was designed for me because you will find no greater love, no deeper joy, no higher experience than me. And I designed you to be satisfied by nothing less than myself. And because I will withhold no good thing from you, so I give myself to you, not as the means by which you can obtain what you desire, but rather by the very object of your desire. Martha, I am the resurrection. I am the life. This is what Jesus is trying to get through to her. So the substance of our interior world, this faith that I say we need, ought not to be built on the foundation 
of what Jesus has done or can do for us, but rather the internal substructure of our lives, the faith of our lives, needs to be placed fully and completely in who Jesus is. See, I can't guarantee you, not for one second, I can't guarantee you what Jesus is going to do in any given situation. Because Psalms tells us, God is in heaven, he does whatever he wants. Despite, despite men that I greatly uh, admire, who have taught me a lot about faith, faith is not your crowbar to get to strong-arm God into doing whatever you want. That's just not, that's just not it. Faith is rather a substructure that trusts in who God is because he is always, come on, and only good. That's where Christians say amen. God is always and God is only good. So everything he does or does not do is always and only the best thing that can and should be done. This is how you, this is how you live your life sleeping really well at night regardless of what happens. Stock market goes up, I sleep well because he can only and always do what is good. Stock market goes down, I sleep really well because he can always and only do good. I get the job, sleep well, always and only do good. I lose the job, always sleep well because he can always and only do what is good. Because I don't trust what he does, I trust who he is. Everything else in our life is shifting sand. So then, we say around here, say it with me, your problem is not your problem. Your proximity is your problem. All the guests in the room are like, that was the most cultish thing that's happened so far. <laughs> Don't worry, later we're going to give you Kool-Aid. Um, sorry, grape juice. It's grape juice. Um, we're only as weird as we have to be. What we mean is, is, is what Jesus, I believe this is what Jesus has been trying to tell her. Martha, your problem is not that your brother is dead. Your problem is that you are not resting in me. Your problem is not that, 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 that things might go sideways. Your problem is that you are not abiding in who I am. Listen, Martha, it's great that you trust what I can do. That's a good thing. But Jesus loves her and he loves you too much to leave you there. So if he's got to take, if he's got to take Martha through some, some rough waters to get her to a place where she doesn't trust what he can do but who he is, he's more than willing to walk through that with her. Come on, Jesus is more than willing. He is more than able to break down any wall that you in, in believing the lie of sin have built up to try to keep him out. He is more than capable in the reckless raging fury that we call the love of God to dismantle and destroy every barrier and every blockade that you put up against him to get him out of your life. He will get into your life. Because he loves you. And because he is always and only good. So, so, so here's my challenge to us. Trade your question of if only 
If only this had happened, if only this had not happened, if only this could have happened sooner, if only this would have happened later, if only, if only, if only, if only. Trade your if only for if Jesus. If Jesus really is who he says he is, if he really is the resurrection, if he really is the life, then what does that change? Then what what, what cost is too great to get into proximity? What needs to shift and be rearranged in my life so that my priority is not, listen, my priority is not fixing my problems. My priority is simply and always proximity. How close can I be to him? How aware of his abiding presence can I be in this and every moment? Because your problem is not really your problem. I'm not saying it's not a problem. I love you. You got problems. So uplifting, Pastor. Thank you so much. Lord bless you too. I'm not saying that you don't have real, actual problems. I'm saying that the only solution to the real problems are found in proximity to him. And an invitation into that proximity has not only been extended, but has been paid for by him. He does it, always and only. Let's stand to our feet. We believe as a church that when we hear God speak, it is right, good, and responsible for us to respond to it. And this morning, I, I want to I respond very, very simply. We are going to take communion. And though I made a joke about it, and I'm technically sorry for that, it is actually something that we put a lot of value and meaning into because it's something that was given to us by Jesus himself. It's given to us as a gift and as a reminder of the price that was paid so that a way could be made for us to be in proximity with him. Because the scriptures make it clear that, that yes, we, we serve a good God who in the beginning created all things good. But our first parents were told and believed a lie that each and every one of us have perpetuated in our lives to one degree or another. It's a very simple, very effective lie, and that is this, that God hides good things in what he says are bad things. Serpent comes to Eve and says, hey, I know God told you if you ate this, this, this fruit that you die, but really, if you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. God hid something good in here it's the same lie we're told over and over again by our society. If you buy this, drink this, take this, eat this, be with this person, achieve this, gain this, then you'll be happy. If you give in to these desires, if you, if you deny these desires, if you achieve this goal, if you, if you give this away, if you can, can do, 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 get, 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 take, 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 achieve, achieve, attain, then you'll be happy, then you'll be fulfilled, then you'll be satisfied, then you'll be safe, then you'll be secure. God has hidden safety, security, happiness in these things that he says are bad. And as we embrace those things, the Bible has a real simple term for that. It calls it sin. 
Because behind it is a rejection of who God is and rebellion against what God has called us to do. And the Bible makes it clear that the wages of that sin, the cost of that rebellion, the result of that rejection is death. So Jesus, being a God who is always and only good, takes upon himself the penalty for that sin, death. And he dies, a, he lives a perfect life in perfect obedience to the Father because he is not like us. He did not reject God. He did not rebel against him. He lived a perfect life and, and he dies a perfect death in complete submission and surrender to the Father. He dies in our place and for us. And communion is a reminder of that, regardless of how we, how we take it. I know this isn't the normal way that we take communion. Normally, we, we, we have a much more, I think, tangible and maybe meaningful for some of us way of partaking in communion together. But right now, in the current environment of the culture that we live in, this is the best we're going to do right now. What I lovingly refer to as curing communion. Prepackaged cups with what I think is styrofoam on the top. I'm just going to be honest. It is... It is it's certainly not bread. I tried it once. You can play guitar with it. But for us in this moment, it's not about what it is. Come on, somebody. It's about what it represents. The broken body of Jesus, broken for you and for me. And the cup, a representation of of grape juice, of, of, the, of the shed blood of Jesus, again, for you and for me. But if you're here this morning and, and this is all either news to you or, or, or you've never really come to entrust your life to that reality, my, my invitation to you is to receive the life that Jesus wants to give you. Receive the resurrection that Jesus wants to give you. Romans chapter six, verse five says that if we die a death like his, if we die in union with him, if we die embracing his death on our behalf, we will also be resurrected like him. Not in some future far off state of a being a disembodied soul floating around in the clouds, but right here, right now, in this moment, he gives you new life and he sustains that new life in himself. The way you receive that, the scriptures tell us, is simply through repentance and faith. Which is just fancy church words that, that mean that we, that we admit and abandon the sin in our life. That rejection, that rebellion, we admit it. Hey, I rejected him and I rebelled against him. All this stuff that I did was all, actually, maybe I wasn't aware of it at the time, but I see now it was all an effort to get rid of God, keep him out of my life, and do what I wanted to do. Admit it. And then abandon it. Let it go. Admit that it didn't actually produce what it promised you it would. And then belief simply means to embrace Jesus and entrust your life to him. So as we partake in communion as part of our response, I want to encourage you, if, if you are a believer, doesn't matter if you're a guest here with us, if you've, if you've repented and put your, your faith in Christ, you would call yourself a Christian, you are welcomed, invited to take communion with us. You don't have to be a member. You don't have to be part of our church. You don't, there's no secret handshake. You're not going to have to go through a theological test. But here's what I would say. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, if you're not somebody who's trusted Christ, and you're not doing that even for the first time this morning, I would, I would just let you know, you don't have to pretend like you weren't communion with us. No one's going to notice the Bible says this is something that Christians should do and non-Christians shouldn't. So we would just encourage you, you don't have to pretend like you're a Christian this morning. You're welcome in this place. You're welcome here with us. But if you are a believer, 
please partake with us. The, the, the last way this morning, I really want to encourage us to respond. I think we just need to worship Jesus. I want to make sure we understand that, that when we work, we worship the way we do here as a, as, a, as a church, as a community, as a company of people. We worship the way we do because we believe that while God, listen to me, just last thing, while, while we believe that God is everywhere all the time, amen? That's, that's, that's part of his, you know, God. He's everywhere all the time. We also know that God chooses in his sovereignty, in his goodness, to make his presence known in specific places at specific times for his own purpose. And we want to live our lives aware of that manifested presence of God. So what we do as we worship is we practice finding his presence. We practice proximity. So this morning, what I want to encourage us to do is let's practice. Let's, as we end this morning, as we come to a close of the service, let's practice his presence. Let's practice proximity. Let's practice being with him. Not so that we can do it and leave, but so we can sustain that as we go. So he's not just our resurrection, not just the beginning, but he's the sustaining of that. And we could live our whole lives, every moment of every day in perfect proximity to him. Amen. Can I give you one more thing? I'm going to give it to you either way, so you might as well just say it. It's, you're really, it's homework. Yeah, I didn't think anybody would get excited about that. Um, I, the reason why I want to give you homework this, this morning for this week is because I don't want this to be an emotional thing. I want to put some substance, come on, to the fire. So here, here's, 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 my, here's my homework for you. Isaiah chapter 60 through 66. That's seven chapters. People are like, it's only six chapters. It's 60, 61, 60, 60, it's seven chapters. I want, you, I want you to read and meditate one of those every day this week. Because in these chapters, what you'll find is this. A beautiful picture, an amazing picture of the new thing God is doing. And here's what I want you to get out of this. That's not for some future far off day. He's doing it in you right now. All the promises you're going to read in Isaiah 60 through 66 are promises that they're not just promises. They're the process that you're in right now. That we're all in right now. As his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together this morning. Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for making us aware of our proximity to Jesus. Thank you for your goodness toward us. Thank you for your graciousness toward us. God, I ask that right now in this moment, you would grant repentance and faith to those who need it, that you would bring new life into their lives, that you would welcome them into the family of God, that they would move in an instant from death to life. God, I ask that in this moment, you would, you would stir up within the hearts of your people a depth of worship like we have never known before. God, that we would exalt you, that we would magnify you, that we would, we would make use of the, the gateway, the doorway, the pathway into your presence. You say that we should enter into your gates with thanksgiving and into your courts with praise. Put very simply, you say we find proximity when we live in thanksgiving and worship and adoration to who you are. So we do that this morning. We, we, we practice proximity together. We worship you. We adore you. Because Jesus, we confess and we believe you don't have what we need. You are what we need. You are our new beginning and you are our life. Jesus, be glorified 
church, let's respond to the Lord.